We're going to turn to Acts chapter 15, share this ongoing journey through this wonderful narrative account of the early church. And there's really one thing in particular that's on my heart for us. And I know we've already prayed, but let me just quickly, quickly pray for this as well. Lord, we just acknowledge our real need of your anointing in our hearts and our lives. We thank you, Jesus, that as you, before you ascended to be with your Father, you said to your disciples, it is actually good that I'm going because I'm going to send the one who will lead you in to all truth. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that, that you are a helper, that you're a comforter, and you're the one who leads and guides us. And I just pray that the scriptures we read this morning would come alive in our hearts, that you would lead us, that you would shape our lives, mold them around your purpose and plan until they reflect the greatness of your image, we pray, King Jesus, for the glory of your name. We pray. Amen. So we're in Acts 15, and Acts 15 is an interesting passage. If you've been following along the series, you'll know that we've just brought to a conclusion Paul's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas have been out proclaiming the gospel. They've seen some great fruit as well as encountered some great struggles along the way. But they've returned to the place that they were sent out from. They've reported back to the church there all that the Lord has done. And we see that at the end of chapter 14 and how it says the Lord had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. There was, you know, for them, there was no desire to receive the glory for themselves. This is the Lord's doing. This is what God has been doing. He is the one who has opened the doors. And it says there remained no little time with the disciples. They were back there um, in communication and connection with that particular church. And then we have this interesting interlude here, the so-called Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, which kind of fits in between Paul's first and his second missionary journey. And it's, it's quite a lengthy account, so we're going to skip through some of the details and really ask ourselves the question, well, how, how does this particular account serve a purpose, not only for Paul and for the believers at the time, but also what is there for us that we can glean and learn from this account, remembering that Jesus has, has kind of sent out his disciples and said, go and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And one missionary trips down, but there's this, there's this big pause to ponder and to, to consider and re-evaluate a particular issue. And it serves, I would suggest, a very important purpose. So let's read the account, and then we will reflect on a couple of things here as we go. <clears throat> it says in Acts 15, verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It says, Paul and Barnabas, of course, had no small dissension and debate with them. And I can only imagine what those debates would have been. No small debate, he says. I don't want you to think it was just a little lighthearted debate. Like there was some passion and there's some intent and there's some feeling as these men have come down from Judea. So let's just set the scene very quickly there, remembering, as I said, that uh, Paul and Barnabas have been proclaiming the gospel, that the Gentiles are coming to faith. But really, this story of God opening the door begins earlier. It begins in Acts chapter 10. 
And for those who are following along, you'd be well aware of that passage because we spent a few weeks delving into some of the the theological intricacies of that particular account. But here's kind of the headlines. We remember there was a Gentile centurion by the name of Cornelius. He gets a visit from an angel, says, good news, the message of salvation is going to be brought to you. Call for Peter and through the proclamation of the gospel, you and your family will be saved, a promise of salvation. Whereas for Peter, he's... You know, in the, in the same, at the same time, he's on a rooftop, he's praying and seeking the Lord, and he has this troubling vision. He gets thrust into the midst of a confusing problem as he sees these animals, and we talked about exactly what they represented, the clean, the unclean, and he's told to rise, kill, and eat. And he says, no, I, I, I can't do that. I've never done that. This is, this is so outside what I believed to be the working and the outworking of the Lord. And three times the Lord says, arise, kill, and eat. He says, no, I can't do it. And, and fundamental to that issue as we, as we examined this some weeks ago was not the fact that the Lord was somehow trying to change Peter's diet. He wasn't saying we need to introduce a few extra protein groups into your daily meal routine. It's far more significant than that. And the phrase literally was, what God has cleansed, do not call un." clean. He was trying to tell Peter, and Peter does eventually grab a hold of, of course, of what the Lord's saying, that there's something fundamental that has transpired. Not that the old was wrong or bad. It was the command of the Lord for time and season. But something significant has transpired. As Christ has come, as he's laid down his life as a ransom for many, as a sacrifice, as he's been resurrected from the dead, Something significant has transpired. It it was already done, and yet Peter, theologically, had a little bit of work to kind of catch up, theologically speaking, with what had already been accomplished on the cross. And I suggest so often we are like that. There is the finished work of the cross. God has done it. There's nothing we can add to it, but so often there's, there's different layers and elements of what he's done that need to be revealed to us. God needs to recalibrate our thinking so that we can grab a hold of what it is that he has already accomplished. So that's the background and that's the scene. And there's this group of people, they're often known as the, the Judaizers, and they've come down and they essentially said this, let's, let's help God a bit. God, you know, he's obviously doing a new thing with the Gentiles, but we maybe need to give him a bit of a theological framework to fit into. So it says that they're teaching this, that in order to be saved, you must be circumcised and you must live your lives according to the custom of Moses. So they weren't denying that this, the message of the gospel was going to the Gentiles and the Gentiles were being saved. They said, well, that's okay, that's good. Well, here's how it's got to happen. The Lord obviously needs a little bit of help in the outworking of his plans, so we'll give him a theological framework. In order for all the Gentiles to be saved, they need to jump through these hoops, they've got to be circumcised, they've got to come under the covenant of Moses and submit their lives to all that entails, and then they can meet Christ. And obviously, we read that Paul strongly disagrees. There was no small disagreement. There's a bit of feeling about this issue. So how do they respond? It says in the second half of verse 2, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now this is, to me, of great significance. I think so often 
we see when there's been perhaps a, a theological issue or something we, we disagree with, the easier option is just to kind of walk away. You know what, let's just branch off, let's just start our own church, we'll, we'll believe that and we'll go our own path and forget about trying to work through any of the issues. But it says here their response is, no, we, we need to wrestle through this together. And so Paul and Barnabas and some others, they head up to Jerusalem. And I want you to see a couple of other aspects to this that are not in the text of Acts 15, but Paul gives us some insights in the book of Galatians. So keep your place where you are. We're coming right back to Acts 15 and jump over to the book of Galatians chapter 2. This is Paul, of course, he writes this letter to the Galatian believers and he says this in chapter 2 verse 1, describing the same event that we're just talking about there. He's been sent up to Jerusalem. They're wrestling through this theological issue. It says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Verse 2, this is interesting. He says, I went up because of a revelation. Now, the ESV there kind of could be open to misinterpretation, but Paul is not saying here that I went up because of some personal revelation. The specifics of the word there make it very clear that he, he went up, he attended this council, he headed in this particular direction because of a revelation from the Lord, because of a divine revelation. Some translations literally say that, because of the leading of the Lord, because the Lord told me to do it. I'm not going up there because I think it's a good idea. I'm not going up there to give him a piece of my mind to set some things straight. I'm going up there fundamentally because God is leading me there. God is saying, take time out of your missionary journeys. Remembering this is no short trip. Nothing happens there overnight. It wasn't a, you know, a Skype, Zoom conversation that we're all becoming so familiar with that was going to take an evening. This was a journey. But the Lord is saying, go. This is important. So he says, I went up there because the Lord was leading me to do it. And what I want to get to is why the Lord would lead him to do it more. We'll get there in a minute. But he says something else interesting. So I went up because of a revelation set before them, being the apostles who had gathered there and the other church leaders of the time, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. So I went up there. God told me, come, let's have a conversation about it. But here's an interesting addition. He says, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So that's his art. He says, I'm going there because the Lord's told me to go, but I want to ensure that I'm not running or haven't run in vain. So what was it that Paul was concerned about? What is it that would cause him to run in vain? Well, quite simply, it would be if, he, if his doctrine, if what he was teaching was veering off from that which was right and true. And the other side of the same kind, what is it that would cause him to run not in vain, not in vain. It's ensuring the doctrine that he is teaching is in alignment with the truth of the gospel, yeah? Okay, so let's go back to Acts 15, let's continue on. So the church has sent them up there, but Paul's made it clear in Galatians that actually it was the Holy Spirit that prompted him to go to be a part of this convention, this council of people who have gathered to consider this theological issue. So being sent, this is verse 3, sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up, and here's the opposing argument. So remember, they're gathering to, to wrestle through this particular theological issues, and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them, being the Gentile believers, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So verse 6, the apostles and the elders, this is the, the who's who of the early church. Everybody is there. They gathered together to consider the matter. And after there'd been much debate, so there's an ongoing debate. There's both sides being presented as they discuss, as they wrestle through. It says, in the midst of that, Peter stood up to them and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's saying, here's what we've got to remember. This, this was not something that originated in the heart of man. This, this is... The whole foundation of this debate is not something that came from a, a theological principle alone. So you, you know well that this was God's doing. This was God choosing me. God has been behind this from the very beginning. God chose me. I was the one through whom the Gentiles should first hear the word of the gospel and believe. And not only that, verse 8, it says, And God knows the heart. And God, knows, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So not only did God open the door, did he appoint me, but God has confirmed his word through the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we've talked at nauseam about that too. Just as we, this, this, there's no distinction between us and them. How could we make a distinction when God has made it clear that there is no distinction. Verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And here's really the key of the whole thing. I think this is a wonderful expression from Peter in verse 11. It says this, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. See, he's completely turned it on its head. He's moved from this place, hasn't he? As he sees his vision unfolding, he's like, no, no, no. Arise, kill and eat. No, I cannot. This is not the will of God. And then he's moved from this place as he meets with Cornelius and both of them are a bit like, well, I don't know what's going on here. We both know this is not the way that we thought it would work, but let's wrestle through this together. And then the moment the Holy Spirit comes, the gospel's proclaimed, they believe Holy Spirit comes. He's like, well, this, this is obviously the Lord's doing. They're no different than us. But now he's gone the full circle and he's turned it on its head and he said, this is where I've arrived at, that we would be saved even as they are saved. This is a new work of Christ, not just for them, but to bring us into that which he's given to them. And the heart of it is simply this, that we will be saved, how? Through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So two fundamental foundational realities. Number one is that the heart of salvation rests on grace. The pillar of the gospel, as Martin Luther called it, the hinge of all Christian doctrine is the proclamation of what he has done. It's what the gospel is by definition. And I know we talk about that all the time and we'll continue to because that is the heart of the gospel. It's not the message of what we must do, what we need to do. It's a proclamation of what he has already done. That's the good news. Not that we've got to do a whole lot of things, but he's done it. 
and that we live every part of our lives in response to the greatness of what he has done. So that's, that's the first and probably for us the most important reality of, of the conclusion as they wrestle through this. It's all about him. It's all about grace. It's all about salvation by faith through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second is, obviously, as he's turning this on the head, he's turning around the theological arguments and he's saying, well, the fullness of salvation was never about somehow finding a way for the Gentiles to kind of sneak in the back door through the Jewish covenants, through the Jewish promises. This was a message of salvation that is opened up for everybody, Jews and Gentiles alike, this one unified soteriological narrative, this grand story of salvation. Two fundamental realities. So let's read on quickly just to bring the, the account to an end. It says, verse 12, all the assembly fell silent. Now, that's not just meaning that they've stopped arguments, that stopped arguing and they're all quiet. The context there is literally they had nothing else to say. What, what else? How, how can we argue with that? This is God's initiation. God's confirmed his word. It's clearly something that God has done. Who, who are we to say any more to it? So they fell silent as they listened to Paul, Barnabas and Paul relate what signs and wonders God had done. And then finally, verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon's related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Verse 15, and with this, all the words of the prophets agree. So that's where they, they finish this conversation, is that they build it upon the foundation of Scripture. This wasn't some departure. This wasn't some you know, new little book that we've got to add in to, to the Bible. It's saying that this, this was what Scripture has revealed was God's purpose all along. It's just the fulfillment of that which he had promised. And we could go on. It says that they then report back. They write a letter. There's great rejoicing as all the Gentile believers hear the conclusion of this council, this divinely ordained council that happens at Jerusalem. So what, what is the heart of it? What was this all about? What is this interlude in the book of Acts? It's simply about this. It's a moment where they established the truth of the gospel. It was a moment to get together, to deliberate, to discuss, to decide upon with the leading of the Spirit, to decide upon doctrine. Now, I know that sometimes for us, doctrine has a bit of a, leaves sort of a bit of a bad taste in our mind, and perhaps we've had experiences where... Now, people have got caught up in nuances of doctrine that have actually led us away from faith in Christ. But I would suggest this. This account is vitally important for us. It was vitally important in the new church and certainly in Paul's ministry. He said, I went there because the Lord told me to make sure I wasn't running in vain. I mean, it was that critical. If, I, if we don't get this right, then nothing else I do is going to be of any impact or effect. We might say, is it really that big of a deal? Couldn't they just have agreed to disagree? I mean, it's probably what we would do these days. You'd be like, you know what? Does it really matter? Does it really matter? Maybe they want to follow this custom, that custom. They want to do it this way or, or that way. What, you know, who cares? And the truth is, there are some preferential areas of our Christian faith that are like that, aren't they? Perhaps an example is what style of music we might like. Do we prefer to sing contemporary songs? Do we like drums in worship? Are they from the devil? You know, they need to be cast out of the building as quick. Like there's, there's some preferential elements. But the reality is that the, 
the church is only ever going to be as strong as the truth that it clings to. Think of it this way, Matthew 16, 16. There's this account in Jesus' ministry where he's been with his disciples for some time. They've seen some miracles. They've perhaps glimpsed a a portion at least of who he is. And there's this moment as they're they're on the road and they're traveling along from one destination to the next. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he's like, pauses for a moment, says, who who do you say that I am? Who do people people say that I am? what, What are the impressions? What are the the perspectives out there on who I am. And, of course, they offer a few. One says, well, you're maybe, maybe you're a prophet or one of the prophets. Some say, well, maybe, maybe you're Elijah. And after these suggestions kind of die down to a lull, he says, yeah, but who, who do you say that I am? Who do you? Who do you say that I am? And, of course, we read the account that Peter, he stands up in the middle of that and he proclaims, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Now, so significant was this moment in Jesus' ministry that he turns to Peter, and I can, you know, I can never get my head around these words. He says, blessed are you, Simon, for, first of all, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. This is not just of yourself. This is, this is a divine revelation and insight that's being given to you from heaven. And in verse 18, grab this, it says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, that is a weighty pronouncement for him to say. On this foundation, on this rock, I will build my church. In fact, I can't think of anywhere else in Scripture. Many many times Jesus says, you know, listen to this, verily, verily, I tell tell you. He says, this is important. I want you to hear it. He emphasizes things. But nowhere else can I find in the gospel accounts that he goes as far as to say, this is so important that I would call it the foundation." This is the foundation. You forget this, what sort of a building are you going to have if you lose the foundation? What is that foundation? Well, there's been streams of church theology from time to time over the years that have unfortunately uh, misconstrued what Jesus is saying and associated the foundation with Peter as a person. Now, that, I believe, is incorrect theology because Jesus was not saying that somehow Peter himself was going to be the foundation. What he was saying was that Peter's revelation that was given to him, not even of himself, but inspired by God, this statement of doctrinal truth, this foundational reality, that Jesus is the Messiah, saying that is the foundation. That is the foundation. I would say this, from that particular account and many others, we could make this assertion that from the very beginning, Christianity has been a faith built on the centrality of its truth. That's what it's been built on. It's not cleverly contrived stories. It's not some subjective, therapeutic, wishful thinking. It's not good practical principles. There's great principles in there, but that's not the heart and the foundation. It is built on a foundation of truth. It is. It's a truth claim. Our faith is built upon truth alone. And specifically, this truth can be distilled into this one defining absolute. That is who Christ proclaimed himself to be. See, it's not just, I mean, the, the miracles are, were, were wonderful. Like, what, what an incredible reality that he came and walked on water and he healed the sick and he opened blind eyes and he fed, like, incredible. But the miracles in and of themselves, they serve one purpose, which is to point to the reality of who he is. They point us to the truth. 
The resurrection, such a, a defining moment that the grave is empty. It is incredible. As, as Paul says to the Corinthians, he's like, man, if the grave was not empty, then we're the most to be pitied. Like, what sort of a saviour have we got? But given that it's empty, there's a saviour who's come and done what? Proven that he was who he said he was and that he'd accomplished what he said that he came to accomplish. It points us to the truth. Time and time again, we, we see as Paul writes, particularly the pastoral epistles to Timothy and to Titus, he has this, this ongoing, you can tell it's a burden for him as he writes to these young spiritual sons in the faith. We see this in 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 1, etc., etc. He continues to tell them of the importance of fighting for truth. Fight for doctrine. Make sure you teach doctrine. Make sure you live your life by the doctrine. In fact, he says to Timothy at one point, guard that deposit of faith, the, the truth that has been passed down to you. Guard it, in my own words, like your life depended upon it. Because in many ways it does. If we lose that foundation, the inevitable conclusion is that we run in vain. What have we got if we lose the foundation of truth? All then we've got is nice stories, subjective interpretations, and practical principles that may or may not help us a little in different areas of our life. It's the truth that makes the difference. Doctrine does make a difference as we build our lives upon it. Truth shapes our lives. And this is why I believe this passage here that, again, the Holy Spirit has, has gone to lengths to orchestrate. As he says, Paul, you've got to take some time out from your missionary journeys, and I kind of imagine him thinking as he comes back, he's so full of faith, he's thinking, well, God's, you know, God's doing all these things, and he's called, I'm ready to go, where's next, who are we next going to proclaim and preach the gospel to? It's almost like the Holy Spirit says, just press pause, just hang on a second, because we just need to make sure that not only you, but all of the church is not running in vain. We've got to establish again that foundation of truth, making sure that there's that reality that we're building our lives upon, that we can run with purpose and passion and perseverance, not running in vain, but with great effect. So there is, there's this, I think, fascinating journey in the book of Acts. As the people are brought together, as the church again is grounded and reestablished on truth. And I want to kind of crystallize it for us, hopefully crystallize it this way as we kind of bring this to a conclusion this morning. See, there, there is this reality that truth shapes our lives. Truth shapes our lives. It defines and it directs, motivates. It shapes our lives, whether we like it or not. And we do live in a culture and an age where at times truth and is there truth? Is there absolute truth? It has sort of taken on a bit of a, a, bit of a dirty word, isn't it? Truth has moved from being something that's perhaps narrow-minded to something that is at times presented as being downright oppressive. How can you tell me this truth? I mean, there's nothing new really here. That was exactly Pilate's criticism of Jesus. He says, well, what is truth? Who, who are you to say that? I mean, is your truth any different than... Is there truth? 
Does truth really exist? Well, the reality is that truth does exist and truth shapes our lives. And even the notion that there is no truth, which we hear all the time, say, well, there is, there is no absolute truth. It's silly for at least two reasons. And let me quickly give you both of them, and then there'll be a point at the end, I promise. See, first of all, we all believe in some level in absolute truth. We do. We don't even think most of the time if we walk out the door, you know, will the truth of gravity hold and sustain us? Will we go flying off into a vortex of space? Is, is it absolute? Is it real for me today, gravity? We don't, we don't have those thoughts, do we? We believe without even thinking about it in the absolute truth of gravity. We do. There are absolute truths all around us that direct and shape our lives. Otherwise, we'd be walking out with a space helmet on, you know, just in case we're about to get sucked off to planet Mars. So we do believe it. But secondly, the statement that there is no absolute truth is, by very nature, a statement of absolute truth. The only difference is that it's a statement of truth that's built upon the certainty of uncertain, uncertainty. I mean, that's effectively what we're saying. We're saying we, we don't know absolute truth. The only thing that we can know for certain is that there is no truth. It's a statement of absolute truth. It is. It's circular reasoning. And the, the tragic reality is that's the worst possible place that you could build anything upon. One of the greatest realities of the mess that we're in as a society. Remove truth. What have we got left? That's all we've got, the certainty of uncertainty. So the truth is that, that there is truth. That is the truth. It's a truth that will guide. One of my favorite living theologians, N.T. Wright, he says this, there is a truth, one truth that makes sense of us, which restores to us the sense and the nonsense of our lives, the story which breathes hope into a world of chaos and love into cold hearts and lives. And here's what I want us to grab as we've read this account, as we've pondered a little. It comes down to this. Christianity and our faith, it stands as, and our faith is built upon not just an emotive story, not just a well-constructed narrative, not just practical principles, but this unchanging, unshakable reality of truth. And it's that foundation that we cling to as a refuge. That's what gives us peace, perseverance. That's what we build on as an everlasting foundation, that there is a foundation that will endure. That's what we feast on as a fountain of everlasting joy, that there is truth that shapes and it defines everything that we are and all that we do. If we can get the keys, where's Jeanette, just to play back. Let me finish just by asking you then this question. It's a really simple one. So what truth is it that is shaping our life? And I say what truth because the question is not, is, is truth? Is there a truth? There is. Our lives are shaped by truths, by what we believe. But what truth is it that is shaping our lives? Because if that's a question that, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul was required to ask as he gathers together with the leading of the Lord to say, am I running in vain? Do I need to, to calibrate my beliefs and my doctrines? Are, are there things that need to come back? 
Because for him, he's like, I, I want to make sure I'm running this thing. Not in vain. But all my efforts, all my energies, all the blood, sweat and tears. If there's not that foundation, I recognize and realize it's going to be for nothing. I think for us on a personal level, sometimes we spend so much time using another picture of Jesus, building things on the wrong foundation. Jesus says a bit like there's two people. One's building on the sand, one's building on the rock. And you can't really tell any difference. They, they both look like they're solid structures. But it's the moment the wind comes, the rain falls, storm surge, the cyclone, the troubles, the trials, the tribulation. That's what exposes the foundation. And we don't want to be people whose foundations are exposed in the midst of the storm. And we don't have to be. Because there's an invitation even this morning for us to come back and ensuring that our lives are built upon the firm foundation, upon the truth of who He is. It's the one foundation that endures. It's the one reality we can cling to. It's the one motivation that will ensure that we never run in vain. Can we pray? Should just close your eyes. And as I've, as I've asked that question, I'm going to give you just a moment just between you and the Lord just to allow Him to reveal the foundations of your life. And Holy Spirit, I just pray in this moment that we have now that you would really come and you'd reveal to us, that you'd open our eyes to see the foundations of our lives. So easy for us to, to be caught up as we, we read from Colossians at communion in vain philosophies and things that promise the world, but deliver nothing but emptiness. So easy for us to, to run the race, to be exerting energy, blood, sweat, tears, thinking that we're heading somewhere only to realize that. We're running in vain. Lord, I pray this morning that there would be that recognition of the importance, but also of the, the power of being a people who build our lives upon the foundation of truth. Thank you that there is truth. As we sing sometimes, there is truth that sets us free. Jesus Christ, who lives in you know, it, it may be that there's someone here this morning who was in the earlier service and there's that sense for you that you don't know what it is to have a life that you feel is, is built upon the rock. Here's, here's the wonderful thing about Christian truth. This isn't a journey into building your life upon more principles. See, the truth doesn't lead us just to principles. It leads us to a person person of Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To build your life upon him and upon the relationship that he, he offers to us. And it would be 
my absolute privilege to introduce you to the one who is truth this morning. You can respond. I'd invite you just to come forward and see me and pray together. There's an opportunity this morning as well for, for prayer ministry. If there's anything at all that the Lord is just stirring in our hearts. I think it's a time and a season both to be ensuring that we're building our lives on the rock, but also the, there's a recognition and a reality of the greatest message we have to give to the world is a message of truth, not just of good stories and practical principles, but a foundation that will last and endure. So if you'd like prayer this morning, you're welcome to come forward. Um, as we announced before, there's also an opportunity this morning for prophetic ministry. We do this once a month, so there's a team of people who'd be more than happy just to wait on the Lord and see whether He has any words of encouragement just to speak over your life, to pray over your life. So if you'd like to avail yourself of the prophetic ministry, you need to head into the cafe area, and the prophetic teams can head off there now and get ready. Ask the prayer ministry teams to come forward here this morning. There's no, there's no need for you to rush off. If you want to just sit in the presence of the Lord and He's ministering to you, then you're welcome to do that. If you'd like prayer this morning, love for you to come forward and we can pray for you. Pray you have a blessed week. Lord willing, we will be here again next Sunday. But we're not taking anything for granted. And we'll see where we are. We'll be gathering together and worshipping in one format or another. God bless.